Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People This Week, Keir Starmer cuts loose. That's why I'm calling for a two- to three-week circuit break in England. Is Boris Johnson trapped? Let's try to avoid the misery of another national lockdown which he would want to impose. And do we all need to pay more attention to Brexit? There has been a head-in-the-sand approach by traders which has been compounded by what I would call the quadruple whammy. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hello Paul. Rachel Wimouth here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel and we're delighted to be joined by the Conservative former Cabinet Minister Anne-Marie Trevelyan. Hello. Hi Anne-Marie. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, in your office in Westminster by the looks of things. I'm in my office in Westminster, which is not as warm as it might be, so I'm wrapped up in a nice warm blanket. So, you know, it's just like being at home on a normal December day, really, only it's October. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, well, it's been a huge week in Westminster as the government set out its initial response to the second wave of coronavirus. On Monday, Boris Johnson revealed plans for a three-tier local lockdown system he hopes will slow the spread of COVID in areas where it's getting out of control, like Merseyside. But after papers released by the government's SAGE committee showed scientists had asked for a circuit break full lockdown nearly a month ago, Keir Starmer decided to end his constructive opposition and back a short, sharp national shutdown. Instead, Johnson is so far putting more areas into high levels of restrictions, with London entering Tier 2 from the weekend and an almighty battle over whether Manchester should enter Tier 3 without economic support. Let's hear Starmer and Johnson clashing at PMQs. Sage has advised that a circuit breaker should act to reduce R below 1, should reset the incidence of disease to a lower level, and should set the epidemic back by approximately 28 days or more. All three are vital, and that's why Labour backs it. So can the Prime Minister tell us what is his alternative plan to get R below 1? R below 1. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, the plan is the plan that the Right Honourable Gentleman uh, supported on Monday. Uh, and and, and the, the, the whole point, Mr Speaker, is to seize this moment now to avoid the misery of another national lockdown into which he wants to go uh, headlong by delivering a regional solution. And, uh, Mr Speaker, opportunism is, I'm afraid, the name of the game for the party uh, opposite because uh, they they backed backed the rule of six. Um, Paul, uh, many people now see a national circuit break, possibly in the next couple of weeks, as inevitable. What do you think? Well, it it looks increasingly like number 10 are, are keeping it as a live option. Um, the Prime Minister obviously said, I rule nothing out yesterday in Prime Minister's Question Time. Um, they obviously don't want to do that. I think one of the reasons for that is that uh, the, lo- the logic is those areas that aren't as high as everywhere else, they feel that they'd be unfairly punished for... for um, 
not having as high rates. But you have to say that it feels like it's going to come at some point. The question is when, really, maybe rather than if. And it might be through the back door, through a series of really tight restrictions in various areas, that it, it to all intents and purposes, might feel and look like a, a national circuit break uh, over time. question is when. I mean, one option is, obviously, it's half term coming up on the 26th for Parliament and for schools. And that's that's one option where the PM might say, oh, well, well we've now got a fair amount of evidence. Maybe we could just expand it and be a bit tougher. He could, however, wait until pre-Christmas, like two weeks before Christmas, and have that as a circuit break. That's another option. But that might be too late, I suppose. I th- the, the difficulty in all of this is is the politics of it, which is that, you know, He's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. And I think um, he's beginning to realise that that's basically what being Prime Minister involves. <laughs> Anne-Marie, your constituency in Berwick is in a kind of unique situation in that you're on the border with Scotland, which has much tougher restrictions. How, how is it working there? I believe that you've been in some uh, sort of tier two restrictions for a while now. So, yeah, so the northeast um, has been in what is now tier two. So it was slightly tighter. Now people can meet in a garden, you know, two families can meet in a garden again. But fundamentally, uh, the tier two restrictions for about a month because there was a sudden uh, spike. And Northumberland, whilst having uh, lower numbers across Northumberland in the southeast of Northumberland, there was a, a very sharp spike. Uh, and council leaders, you know, in my view, very wisely, and I supported them, asked to go into the regional lockdown because we are a, a small and tight region. So people's uh, work routes, you know, social routes do go in and out of Tyneside, even if they're Northumberland based. Um, there's been some interesting challenges with the border. So those who travel north of the border for work, um, the two test and trace apps don't quite uh, work together one cancels the other out if you have them both on at the same time on your phone so uh, Matt Hancock's team are working on making the England app you know kind of user friendly with the other one you know the, the quirks of, of Berwick life are are constant and it turns out that in a pandemic we also find that there are things that you know don't work from one side to the other but fundamentally people are you know very um understanding of the challenge I think you know initially there was a well you know it's not fair in Berwick or in Rothbury we're fine we've got no cases why are we being you know made to have restrictions but a month in that's not the case cases have appeared because of course people do move around you know and we want to try you know this is the as you say the unenviable challenge the Prime Minister's got of this sort of seesaw uh, of trying to balance uh, keeping things moving making sure that we don't have to close education which is so critical and has such long-term consequences if we do, uh, alongside, uh, you know, keeping this this virus under control and preferably at a very, very low level and certainly lower than R being one, because as we've seen demonstrated in our northern cities, as soon as it gets above one, it moves at speed. You know, one person passes on to four people, four people pass it on to four people. You know, it's the basic maths lesson. Uh, and I think because it was, you know, came down over the summer and that was fantastic and we were able to, uh, release the economy, you know, back to pretty much full strength. It's as if everyone's slightly forgotten the basic maths, you know. And I was talking to some school children the other day, and it is still basic maths. The virus hasn't changed. Uh, humans' ability to cope with it hasn't changed. You know, the young ones are fine, thank God. It's not a plague that attacks the young in any form, but it is a really, really nasty bug for people who are vulnerable or who are old. Uh, and you know, as a society, a Western society that believes in the value of life and everybody being looked after, we therefore have to value the 
older, more vulnerable people too. And as soon as our hospitals fill up, we can't look after them and then we can't look after everybody else. So this impossibly difficult seesaw of trying to keep that R down, providing pressures where we have to, you know, only laws where absolutely we know there's an impact, but the advice needs to be followed. And that's the that's the real challenge, actually, are people exhausted from it? And it's not an unreasonable challenge, but we have to all find some energy and keep going and trying to stick to the rules. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that specifically, Anne-Marie, was that, you know, it's interesting what you said there in that you, you had no cases when Berwick went into restrictions, but then you, you had some cases. And we've seen that in areas like Manchester, where cases have continued to go up with, with, with the lockdown there seeming to have very little effect. Uh, I wanted to ask, especially in the Northeast, do you think Dominic Cummings' actions in the Northeast might have had an impact on compliance? Well, I don't think so overall. I mean, I think with, the, with you know, the young ones, uh, you know, university and just general social life over the summer where, you know, clearly there was no uh, attempt of any great deal to, to maintain social distancing. You know, the restaurants and the bars brought in the regulations and made within their spaces uh, COVID safe environments. But, you know, if you're stepping outside and then, you know, hugging all your mates, completely understandable human behaviour. The problem is it moves at speed. So, uh, I think it's just simply that human nature wants company. Uh, and this is a really, really difficult challenge. You know, World War II, bombs raining out the sky. You understand who your enemy is. It's falling out of the sky and it's going to smash your house. It's really clear. Everyone's willing to, you know, to play and to understand and to follow the rules. This is a very difficult uh, enemy to get to grips with because actually for a lot of the time it doesn't, you know, fortunately have, you know, dramatic impacts. But if our hospital systems are full up, Everybody will know. And I've, you know, I've said to some people who are determined that all freedom should be allowed and no one should be, you know, stopped from leading the life they choose, until you tell me you couldn't get an ambulance to come and get your husband who suddenly couldn't breathe because he had COVID. You telling me you're not going to call an ambulance and you won't be cross with me when there isn't capacity. Ah, do you know what? This is everybody's problem. We've all got to just be a little bit boring and help bring the R down. And it's it's really hard. It goes against every part of human nature. But that's the nature of the enemy we're dealing with. I was, ju I was just going to ask, Anne-Marie, do you think that, yeah, I know that a lot of people are very frustrated, some, mm. getting some mixed messages, it's kind of difficult to get people on the same page. Do you think that the Prime Minister have to, has to offer some light at the end of the tunnel? Do you feel like he has to say, we need to get through this period so we can get to Christmas? Or... How do you think he gets people on the same page again? I think that's a really, really good question. And I think, you know, there is there is a, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of, you know, lots of things, both in the way, as the epidemiologists have always set it out, you know, all these viruses, because it's not a horrible, horrible monster that, you know, you know kills people in vast numbers, it will even out uh, and sort of steady. But it's, it's not going away until such time as we've got a vaccine. It's going to be part of our environment and vulnerable people like like the like the influenza until we had a vaccine it took out tens of thousands of people every year you know this this is a similar and more virulent virus than the flu so we've got to understand as a community as a you know whole community that is that a different way of life for a while is necessary but along with the ability if we can manage that to be able to get on and lead you know happy lives but the reality is that this is this is challenging until such time as we've got really good 
weapons against it. It's not it's not so strong it'll burn itself out as a virus, and it's not so weak that it doesn't affect very large numbers of our friends and neighbours. So, you know, he has got a really difficult challenge, which is for this winter, because like all viruses, it lives longer and more happily in colder weather, um, we've got to manage it. And that's a, it's a long, hard slog for everybody. But everyone's got to buy into it. And the challenge, I suppose, for the Prime Minister is to is to ensure that people, you know, can can buy into that and really understand why. And I, I mean, personally, I think we should bring back the daily, the daily update because talking to constituents who don't like all of us live in a political bubble and are, you know, daily aware of the numbers and the changes. You know, they get home from whatever their job is, they get the kids in, they put the tea on the table, and they turn the telly on, and that's their, you know, half hour of the day when they absorb information. And actually, it was it was really well received. I think that's something that. Um, gave people both an understanding and a sense of of the continuity of the problem, which is what we've got to really, you know, embed. Sadly, you know, it's a hard hard yards for this one. Some of your colleagues want to see um, economists appear at those press conferences mm-hmm. as well. Do you think that would be useful? I think all all information is useful. I think there's, you know, as someone who was in cabinet through the thick of this, I mean, you know, we were subsumed with huge amounts of data. You know, different parts of the whole picture uh you know and that's why i'm very comfortable with the position i've got which is everyone's got to help out here because there's no magic bullet at the moment um so i think all parts of you know that puzzle shared with the population you know our population are very straightforward and honest and have a load of common sense and actually they're pretty good at understanding the problem and i think most people do you know that's the point most people are trying really hard to do the right thing yeah, it's interesting. I guess it, the appearance of econ- economists might help um, the Prime Minister um, provide some justification for having local or regional mm-hmm. lockdowns rather than a full national lockdown, perhaps. Yeah, I think, I think you know, those voices that help, you know, give the transparency to the data and, and just, you know, explain it in ways that, you know, make sense to those who aren't, you know, political geeks like us who spend our time poring over this stuff. Yeah, uh, Rachel, Rachel, I just wanted to ask about uh, Keir Starmer. Um, he made a pretty big move this week. Constructive opposition ended. Um, what, what were his motivations and is it a risk? Um, yeah, I guess this, this, this week was the moment when you sort of had this parting of the ways to some, to some extent. Um, it came sort of shortly, shortly after the, the SAGE papers were released that said that the scientists, the government scientists had recommended a, a circuit break, a lockdown, and then Keir Starmer followed that and said this is what he thought was in the national interest. He had some, he's had some internal pressure from people like Andy, Andy Burnham and Northern mayors who are um, opposed in some of the restrictions in their area and want to see, you know, a more national picture of breaking the whole thing down. But um, yeah, I guess he's been, he's also been, been under some pressure from people within his own party to be more strident in taking the government on. But his approaching sort of the early days of his leadership has to be has been to support the government where possible so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because you know the picture could look entirely different in a year when we have you know we'll see exactly what does happen with the economy so very hard to say how decisions and positions taken now are actually going to play out. What was really interesting about that data dump uh, was um, on Monday night was I remember going through like Rachel at the time and, and scrolling through the sage minutes now, which is you know, they're buried away. They're not easy to read necessarily, but they suddenly sent us all an email saying, you know, within minutes of the, of the press conference, 
that actually here's this new information. And I remember reading it, and I couldn't quite believe what I was reading. I thought, hold on, am I really reading this that Sage recommended on the 21st of September, a, a circuit break? And then you go through it, and what? And they're saying that there should be no face-to-face -face tuition for university students. And they went through one by one. I was thinking, this this can't quite be right, can it? And then I had to reread it, and, and no, it was right. Um, now, obviously, they caveated it, and it, it clearly caveated it by saying, look, this is just one part of the jigsaw puzzle, as Anne-Marie just said, you know, and that economists will have to make a separate judgment about other impacts. And number 10 were quite clear about that. But the, the timing of that release, I just still is a bit of a mystery. I don't know why it was done, you know, just after the PM's press conference. For example, MPs, you know, they heard the PM delivery statement to the House. It would have made a lot of sense to publish it in the morning. So MPs could have then asked him about, in, in terms of this transparency point, well, what do you make of this? And it just, I don't know, I don't know why that timing decision was, was taken. It seems rather odd. Do you think, Anne-Marie, that it would, it would be helpful if the scientists had their own press conference and the government had, you know, government ministers had their own press conference so the public could better understand um, why decisions were taken? Well, I think that's why I go back to, I think, that, that you know, the daily, the daily update had useful because it was you know, a mix of a mix of, you know, the people who were involved in making, you know, this jigsaw of decisions. Um, so I, you know, I think I don't think it sort of should be one or the other. You know, it's the great challenge always of uh, you know, you only put a scientist on the stand, you guys are going to ask political questions because, you know, you don't have a delineation between a scientific question or a political impact question, which is perfectly reasonable. But they're really, they're really cornered in that point because as, you know, public servants say they don't, you know, they're not there to make policies there provide, you know, scientific, scientific advice from which uh, the elected politicians, you know, take take a call. So, you know, I think that the, the kind of team effort when everyone, you know, comes together and, and talks in a, in a group is the most powerful one. Um, you know, and I, I would encourage that to continue. But I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, separation helps because this is genuinely, you know, it's an invisible enemy and it's decisions on one side impact everything else and they have to be looked at in the round um you know circuit break is a call it has lots of impacts um the pm's been very very clear that if he's you know if in any way he can he wants to keep education moving 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 and not in not allowing uh breaks there because that has you know that's one of the longest impacts you know covid tales if you like that we would create um you know it won't just be uh last year's cohort who've got on to higher education now it'll be this year's you know uh, nine and ten year olds this year's 14 15 year olds it has a really really long tail if we keep um shutting down education so if that's the if that's the most important thing that we you know try to keep moving everything else is a you know is a constant rebalancing depending on how people are behaving and that's that's the hardest challenge is to is to keep everybody engaged you know businesses have done a huge amount to make their workspace um you know workable for everybody yeah, i think we've forever changed how we work in terms of technology allowing people to be from all over the place which in the long term i think has some really interesting upsides you know the recruitment opportunity you could be anywhere and uh you know work for a company those sorts of things are extraordinary there'll be really powerful positives that come out of this crisis but if we're not if we're going to try our damnedest to keep education going for our young people then everything else has to fit around it and that that's a that's going to be a movable feast all through the winter yeah, do, do, do you think i was going to ask Anne marie do you think that actually the pm 
is just waiting and watching for how the circuit break in Scotland is going to play out before he makes a decision south of the border because that is a that's a live lab test and this circuit break idea you know Sturgeon's really gone for it um and and is obviously is a smaller number of people than in England but do you think he might want to just wait to see how that that the whether the figures shift before he makes a decision well certainly that again that's you know more evidence in the pot to to making decisions but you know we come back to the challenge that uh, you know he is someone who you know believes very much in in freedom and choices and wants everyone to you know follow what are basic rules the hands face space thing it's they're really simple um they're not clever they're really simple but they really stop transmission and actually at the end of the day we can have more of a normal environment to work live and play in if the transmission rate is really low um, you know i don't think we're going to get it to an elimination process because we're not you know minded to lock everybody up and fine everybody every time they step outside the door that's not how the british are and that's a conscious decision to do this you know together uh, and with consent but uh, yeah i mean you're not wrong paul we'll we'll see what what the impact is across that central belt uh, where we did see a sudden you know a sudden surge where you know, it must have been a population who was exhausted from, you know, kind of keeping away from each other and decided they were all going to go around, you know, hugging again. I use that word broadly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that brings us nicely on to the next topic. Uh, the news on Monday that pubs can stay open if they serve food, even under the toughest restrictions, got tongues wagging weapons that Rishi Sunak might be winning the Hawks v. Doves argument on coronavirus in Cabinet. Meanwhile, a number of Tory MPs rebelled to vote against the 10pm curfew for pubs, while Bolton MP Chris Green resigned as a PPS over the latest restrictions, complaining that the attempted cure is worse than the disease. Sunak is meanwhile facing pressure over the economic support, given many areas are now entering nearly full lockdown. All in all, any hope in government that would be able to get past a difficult summer appears to be dissolving. Uh, let's just have a little listen to Tory rebel Steve Baker. The problem with today's statutory instruments is that they demonstrate, a, they implement a strategy to suppress the virus until a vaccine has been found. Indeed, my right honourable friend, the Secretary of State, tweeted out, our strategy is to suppress the virus, supporting education, the economy and the NHS until a vaccine can keep us safe. Well, this runs into three problems. The first is that a vaccine may not come. The second, that a vaccine may not be effective. And the third is that all of this is propped up on quantitative easing and ultra-cheap credit. Indeed, now we're reading in the papers about negative interest rates. And this is why I declare the interest. I think you have to have a peculiarly high level of economic education to believe that we can head towards £745 billion of QE, ultra-low or negative interest rates, and that all this will not be a problem. I will not say any more about it. I think it will be a problem, and I think it is precarious indeed that the government's strategy is propped up on such a monetary policy. Uh, Paul, do you think Sunak is in the driving seat now in that Cabinet argument, and may he have actually stored up trouble for Johnson, given Chris Whitty says tier three doesn't go far enough if he was behind this move on pubs? Well, it's certainly, everyone forgets that actually this is as big a call for Rishi Sunak as it is for the Prime Minister, because his big call has been that the withdrawal of furlough, the end of this month, don't forget, 
um, is still looming, um, that somehow that the economy can cope with that uh, and that we could ride out those job losses. Um, and so he's making a big judgment call as much as the PM is on the, on the national level. Um, but the, the, perhaps the problem is that the hostage to fortune that both he and the PM gave right at the start of this crisis, when they both said these two really key things. One is nobody should be penalised for doing the right thing. And the second is we will do whatever it takes. Now, if we are returning to a situation where the virus is spreading as virulently as, as, as it was earlier in the year, albeit with, you know, we've now got better ways of treating it to prevent people from dying. But if the hospitalisation rate is getting close to what it was in March and April, when they said those two things, um, you'd have to think that maybe Sunak's going to have to, again, look at his financial plans and and just offer some really concrete support that's that goes beyond what he's done already. And I think that's that's going to be the really interesting. The prime minister may well be tempted to say, look, come on, Rishi, we're really, you know, we're suffering here. I get I get your point about fiscal credibility, but, you know, we're back in the same situation. And, and to be consistent, we've got to actually offer similar levels of support. That's going to be quite interesting because that's what lies behind today's whole row and the standoff with Greater Manchester. That's what you know, the Northeast is also saying, well, if you put us into these restrictions, then surely you need to give us some proper financial package. It's about money. And ultimately, it may well be that the, the government goes back to a position where it says, yeah, OK, we can borrow a bit more yet again, um, you know, because we have to. Um, that's a really, really diff difficult call to make. But I think in political terms, it, it's, it's, it might be wiser if they, they revert to what they were doing in April. What do you make of that, Anne-Marie? I mean, tier three lockdown now is not that different to March's lockdown. So should it have a similar furlough entitlement? So, the, you know, this is again, this is this this puzzle and trying to trying to find a way forward, knowing that if we've got to, you know, live with this, you know, I really hope that the vaccine, uh, whether, you know, Oxford's or Imperial's or one of the other, you know, many uh, across the globe, you know, comes off and there's an opportunity that's still in terms of delivering it to more than you know, key workers to the swathes of vulnerable and so on, even if it's quite an effective vaccine, is a long time coming. So finding a way to live with coronavirus in a as balanced a way as possible is really the great challenge. Now, we can't, I don't think we can uh, think that this will be all over by Christmas and it will have vanished and it'll be, you know, the magic, the magic will have passed. We've got to find a way. So that is, that is a, as much a financial challenge, both short term and long term. And that balance of um, you know, none of this money is free. We're all going to have to pay for it. Um, how will we do that? How will that impact on the long-term provision of public services and so on and so on? So the Treasury are in an incredible, their puzzle is particularly complex because it isn't only uh, about that, you know, now image of, um, as Paul says, you know, we have better treatment therapies, but if we haven't got enough hospital beds because they're all full um, and people can't get if they've got cardiac problems or strokes, then we're in all sorts of other healthcare problems and that has long-term economic consequences too. So it's that balance uh, of keeping, keeping everything going and trying, you know, I'll come back to it again. This, this isn't just about government issuing orders or uh, handing out money. This is about everybody understanding that the enemy is out and about. And if they uh, get close to each other and don't wash their hands and get rid of this virus on a regular basis, it continues to be a problem. And that's an economic problem as well as a healthcare problem for everybody for a very long time if we don't do that. It's everybody's responsibility to help out here, not just the Treasury's checkbook. 
But do you think that actually um, one of the big problems is is uh, only twenty percent of people are actually self isolating when they when they should be, and obviously that's causing the tr- the virus to transmit much more than it should be. Given that people are doing that, do you think that that the government could offer much more financial help for those who are self isolating, or do you think that's a minor consideration? In other words, when people are just breaking the rules in terms of self isolation, they they're doing it not because they can't afford to self-isolate but maybe because they just don't want to and if, if it is that they don't want to how do you change that behavior oh paul if you had that answer then we'd all be in a much better place wouldn't we it's human behavior you know sage has got behavioral scientists in it, as well as you know epidemiologists and other whizzy terribly clever people uh human behavior is the is the critical bit of this challenge it really is as it happens um and you know do we need to demonstrate that those that you know, don't stay at home for 10 days uh, by being a bit more aggressive in how we find them. Again, that's you've got the balance of, you know, that police relationship with their communities uh, and finding, you know, a balance. This is a constant seesaw because it's everywhere and it's everything. So it's it's not, you know, I had a conversation with some children um, the other day about laws and I said, you know, we have laws as a disincentive. We don't have them encouraging people to break the law and then get told off. We have the law to try and stop them doing it in the first place. You know, the law for murder isn't because everyone's going to go around murdering people. Uh, you know, most people wouldn't do that because they kind of know that's wrong. Uh, but there's enough people who might that we have the law to try and disincentivize them. So it's the same logic. But do we, you know, we've we've said very clearly that you know, isolation is a requirement so that you don't spread it once you know you've got it. Um, you know, have we got to be more robust in policing that? Maybe, maybe you know, a bit of that would remind people of their obligation um, to their friends and neighbours. And that's difficult because that's a long term, you know, challenge in terms of policing uh, relationships with their communities. But, you know, that that might be a a way to make it clear. I think, you know, over the summer with some of the, you know, rallies that went on when there wasn't social distancing, um, you know, and the police, I thought, were, you know, incredibly resilient in managing it. But certainly in my patch, you'd get the, well, you know, it seems like down in London, you can please yourselves and you can all gather and do what you like. You know, if we did that in Annick Town Square, the local local copper would be telling us to move on. And that's right. So you should. But, you know, they're different. They're different impacts in terms of police relationships with their community so there's a really there's a really big piece of thinking there which I know Kit Malthouse is very very cited on um, but that's one of the challenges if if folks think it's okay to just please themselves and pop off to Tesco's you know because they forgot to get any milk when they realized they had the bug well do you know what actually that's not good enough yeah interesting Rachel I just wanted to ask you about the Tory Covid rebels um, yes. should the PM be worried about them yeah, so um, there was this was during the the votes on the tiers, and in particular the 10 p.m. curfew, which was was already enforced. So it was a, a retrospective vote, but a lot of EMPs chose to just make their point and push for a for a vote on it anyway. And there was a lot of kind of the usual suspects in there, you know, quite um, libertarian kind of Tories, like Steve Baker was was among them, um, Graham Brady was among them. Uh, you know, people we already knew that were against some of the restrictions but there was also some red wall conservatives in there um deanna davison for example matt vickers you know bishop auckland soft and south they were kind of drawing a line in the sand to some extent as well sort of and these are mps that have just been elected in december which is kind of 
quite surprising, really. So, yeah, you would think that Boris Johnson would have noticed that there was this group of red wall conservatives that are also showing their teeth to some extent when it comes to the restrictions. Yeah, and they're Anne-Marie's close neighbours as well, some of them. But um, is this kind of the point? Even if Johnson wanted a national circuit break lockdown, wouldn't all hell would break loose on the Tory backbenches, wouldn't it, Anne-Marie? I think it. I think it would cause real concerns, as you say, as you said earlier, because actually large parts of uh, England are, you know, not in the in the sort of statistical space that the northern northern cities are. Um, but you know, the, the curfew is an interesting challenge because actually, if you look at the, you know, let's look at the broader impacts again. We come back to healthcare capacity. Um, you know, it's boring but important. Actually, when everyone out, everyone goes out on the hoy in Newcastle of a, of a Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, as a lot of people end up in A&E, it's a lot of people, uh, and they're put on a drip or they're left over a bucket and watched over by a very kindly nurse. And when they've stopped clearing their system, they get sent home again. But it fills up the, it fills up the hospital. Uh, if we've got a hospital full of people with COVID, which is a nasty disease that requires a lot of you know, medical, you know, care, and indeed you have to separate them from the others in the hospital, you just reduce capacity. So the 10 o'clock curfew does mean, uh, despite I'm sure some preloading and starting at three in the afternoon, uh, fundamentally reduces <laughs> the drinking and therefore reduces the number of people ending up in any. And those numbers have been clear, you know, you can see it already. It makes a difference. Uh, this is all, it's the seesaw, it's the balance. None of this is definitive or the solution it's part of trying to make sure we keep capacity so that the healthcare system doesn't fall over because if it does that has impacts across the board including eventually economics so um it's the boring sensible i do i sound like you know i sound like my mother bless her you know could you wash your hands make sure you do that but you know what that's the, don't drink so much because then you'll fall over and you'll break your leg and then you have to go to hospital you know that's the reality this is the really it's really boring gritty ordinariness this and all these regulations are to try and help reduce the pressures uh, that end up with hospital system that's overwhelmed if the hospital system is overwhelmed we're all in terrible trouble so it's all really boring grim sorry life isn't as much fun it just is it's hard and it's hard economically because clearly we've built up a nighttime economy that's incredibly successful over the last decade or two so again there's an economic impact but at the end of the day nothing works if you can't get into hospital with whatever your ailment is. That's there for all of us. Anne Marie, I've now got images of you preloading before a night out down the big market. <laughs> it's, never, it's never been my thing, but I, I do know some of a slightly younger generation than me who are minded to do that. I'm, I'm sure Rachel never did, obviously. <laughs> no, that's, that's a, that seems like a fair, a fair defence of the curfew, but it's not really one that I've heard from the government. Why, why aren't they saying this? Uh, I've heard Matt say it. I'm trying to think um, in one of his statements. Um, but again, I, and I do, I mean, I'm. You know, we could all drown in data and we would all enjoy it. I'm not sure anyone else would. But actually, it's that broader question of the impact on healthcare are, is data that I think, you know, and that's an interesting question. I'll, I'll raise it with the Secretary of State, actually, is that should we have that more easily available to us to get a sense of exactly, um, you know, how quickly we see you know, we, we all understand, you know, the, the kind of the winter flu crisis, as it's always helpfully called by journalists every every winter. What does that mean? It means suddenly there's a load of people with flu. Elderly people have, you know, complex illnesses brought on by the flu and lots of other things. They fill up the hospitals. Elective surgery then stops. So it, this is this in, in giant. It's that if one thing 
unexpectedly, you know, and the argument is always, well, you're always going to get a flu epidemic, so why shouldn't you plan? But you don't always. Some some winters, the flu virus isn't as virulent or, you know, it's cooler weather or whatever it is. But this is the same thing in big, which is if the system overwhelms, everything else stops. But also because this is so uh, catching, um, you have to then shut the door to lots of other people because then they catch it too. So it's a really gritty boring thing and that's the challenge this is long hard graph there's nothing exciting about it there's nothing dramatic about it it isn't thank god bombs falling out of the sky uh taking out a street you know it isn't that sort of war but we're dealing with an enemy that is grinding its way to try and shut down a healthcare system and then everybody will know about it, it doesn't matter if you're 20 30 50 or 90 or four years old if your mum can't get her breast cancer treatment because the hospital is full, you know, if your child falls out of a tree with a broken arm and can't get into, you know, this is suddenly everybody's problem. Um, so we have to, we just have to be really boringly sensible about finding the balancing areas that reduce the risk of that hospital care falling over. And I'm afraid too much drinking on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night uh, is one of is one of the elements that causes it. There is, of course, the flip side, which is, of course, you throw everyone out at the same time. And because they've still had a few, uh, they uh, have forgotten by then that they shouldn't all hug their way onto the bus um, and not put their masks on. And the poor bus driver is dealing with, you know, 40, 40, you know, not very sober people all at once. That's really difficult. So, there, you know, there's the, there's the challenge of managing uh, a, a sharp line. Um, and that's, you know, that's again, that's a, a challenge for the police and the local, uh, you know, city community to manage. And that's hard. But doesn't mean it isn't the better the lesser of two evils is to reduce the impact on the hospital yeah well wednesday's a new friday it seems so it, <laughs> it is newcastle. Yeah, um, well, every day is a party day in newcastle <laughs> well if johnson's week wasn't hard enough already the pm must soon decide whether to continue with brexit negotiations or pull the plug and go for no deal eu leaders are set to discuss the state of play at a summit dinner tonight after which the pm and his team will decide whether to carry on but he is widely expected to give more time for negotiations and breach his pledge to either get a deal done by October the 15th or end talks. Meanwhile, Senior Minister Lord Agnew was criticised this week for apparently attempting to shift blame to businesses in advance of potential border chaos in January. Let's hear him. The last bit, though, that worries me the most is the trader readiness. And there has been a head in the sand approach by traders, which has been compounded by what I would call the quadruple whammy of, of two false alarms, so two extensions at the very last minute, then followed by COVID and now followed by the recession. So the, uh, the, uh, the traders are not as ready as they should be. And if there's one headline I hope that comes out of this appearance today, it is to, to send another shot over traders' bows to warn them that the, it is their businesses that are at stake from the 1st of January, and they really must engage in a, in a more... Uh, energetic way. Uh, Paul, have we all got our heads in the sand about Brexit? Well, um, number 10 have been saying this week that, you know, this deadline isn't our deadline. It's Brussels's deadline. It's Barnier's deadline. We're, we're quite chilled about it, despite the fact that the PM himself had actually been on record saying it's got to be done by, by tomorrow. Um, uh, but I think it's really significant that they're giving it a bit more time. I think it's really, really significant. It suggests that a deal is close that, you know, it's not beyond the bounds of, of, of 
the will on both sides and, and of the technical detail to actually be hammered out. A lot of people are thinking that actually, certainly in Whitehall, that we're close. We're not that far. And, you know, we'll see whether or not you need another deadline beyond this summit um, to, to sharpen minds. But it's it feels just in, in your water, it feels as though we're going to get a deal of some kind. Yeah, and Anne Marie, as Paul says, it does feel like we 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 are going to get a deal. But um, some of your uh, Brexiteer colleagues, such as Ian Duncan Smith, have been warning that uh, even if we do get a deal, we, we still be too tied too closely to the EU because of the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland provisions in that, and, and how closely that actually ties the whole UK to the EU. What, what do you make of that? So you know, I'm as I'm as Brexiteer as they come, but we will have left and be, you know, outside the implementation period on the 31st of December or on the 1st of January, and we will be moving forwards. I really hope there's a deal to be made. Um, personally, if it's a fairly basic deal, that's fine to get us across the line, and then we start to, you know, build a relationship in a way that is, you know, separated. I think, you know, the whole thing's been really difficult. Clearly, the EU had a mission which was to make it seem impossible so that other countries might, you know, not choose to try and leave because you know they clearly want to continue uh, their project and you know they're more than welcome to I didn't want my country to be in it but um, they want to so there was there was that sort of sense of make it as hard as possible to begin with but I think as we get closer uh, to the end of the year the reality is that you know businesses across the EU as well as UK businesses want the practicalities to work um, you know it's as impactful in a bad way on German French Italian Hungarian businesses as it is for, you know, my farmers if they are uh, caught in a in a challenging uh, tariff trap. So I think everyone wants to get there. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm quite comfortable if it's a relatively simple deal in that first iteration and then we work on it from there. Fundamentally, you know, the simplicity is we will be outside the EU standing, you know, standing firm as the United Kingdom on the 1st of January and we can crack on and build the new relationship you know with the same rules that we've got we've got the same rules at the moment anyway because we've all been in the same club for a long time so we're starting from a very comfortable you know bottom bottom rung of the new ladder but i think the key, the key point that ids is making i think there's a center for policy studies paper accompanying this was that um the, the provisions in the withdrawal agreement which obviously we've already signed um tie us into things like eu state aid rules and things like that and I mean checks on trade on the Irish Sea, and that means we're actually still a colony of the EU, even if we come out with a basic free trade deal that Boris Johnson wants. Do you agree? Well, I mean, state aid, I know, is one of the issues that's been causing, you know, a lot of the toing and froing in the last few weeks. Um, I'm, you know, I'm confident that the PM, ex, you know, expects to, you know, put the put the UK uh, on a firm footing on the first of January, which is one where we. No, we are able to, you know, get on as we want to do, working in a very constructive way, you know, in a trade deal like we do with any other country, you know, if we think of the EU as a country. Um, so I'm very comfortable that he won't uh, leave us in something that is, as you say, a colony, but it will be something where we are able to move forwards as we want to. But, you know, working with our closest neighbours and clearly our key trading partners. Uh, Rachel, just a quick word on on things stateside. Um, a, key, a key win from Brexit was going to be a UK-US trade deal, but is that possibly under threat by Donald Trump's 
apparent tanking in the US election. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting that the rhetoric has kind of changed changed very recently from the government. That could be because we are very close to a deal, or it could be because there's this increasing gap between um, Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the polls, and um, the Democrats obviously. Um, helped to build the Good Friday Agreement. So I think, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out in the weeks to come. But I think, yeah, the, I imagine the government very much has in mind that um, the there could be a changing of the guard in Washington as well. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, we must move on. It's time for the quiz. And Yay. this week... That's uh, correct. It, oh. uh, following a, a poll this week which showed support for Scottish independence had soared to 58%, this week's is all about English, Scottish, UK relations. So if you know the answer, just shout it out. That's the only rule. Um, who was the king who first united the Scottish and English crowns? Oh, my God. Edward III? No. First time. So well, James, 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 James the Sixth. Yeah, he was James the oh. Sixth in Scotland and James the First. James the First here. Very good. Yeah, yeah well good. done, Paul. Yeah. Uh, question number two. In 1979, there was a referendum on the devolution of power to Scotland, which Scotland voted in favour of, but the UK government didn't act on it. Why not? I was 10. I can't remember. Oh, because it didn't meet, didn't meet the uh, really high two thirds threshold or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, was it 70 yeah, well, yeah. 40% of the entire electorate had to, to vote for devolution. Which, well done, Paul. Yeah. 2 0. Uh, I'm old. I'm old. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm older than Anne Marie. Oh, oh, I'll take that as a compliment somehow. You should. <laughs> that was the, yeah. But yeah let's I'm, move on. I'm, that. I'm thanking that one. It's fine. I'm thanking it. <laughs> let's quickly move on. <laughs> yeah, take what you can get, I suppose. Uh, in, what yeah. year did the, in what year did the SNP first take power as the Scottish government? Ooh. Oh, come on, Rachel, you should know this. Yeah, probably Mrs. Should. Hollywood. <laughs> oh, um, gosh. Was it, um, two, uh, was it 2011? I was going to say 11, yeah. No, he's shaking his no. head at us. This isn't good. No, um, oh, is it? Oh. Was it 2005 or 2006? A coalition government. So, what, 20, 2007? 2007, yeah. Um, but you've, oh. you've already had a guess, Paul. You don't get a point for that. <laughs> Rachel uh, was closest. It was, yeah, it, was, it was a minority government. Rachel was closest. I'll give you a point, Rachel. You, you were pretty much there. Uh, but Paul's won the quiz. Congratulations, Paul. Oh, I needed to restore my honour after a few losses lately. <laughs> Anne-Marie shows she's very much on the English side of the border. Oh yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I've got Scottish roots, so I, I love I love Scotland. It's a wonderful part of the world. But yeah, I'm very English when it comes to these things. I'm very British. I love I love our islands being all joined together. For me, it makes perfect sense. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels, and please be sure to leave us a review. Please also check out Running Mate, our fantastic podcast on the U.S. elections aimed at Brits. And get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with Tory MP Richard Drax questioning the need for a lockdown by actually attempting to impersonate COVID-19. But I ask myself every morning, and I've asked doctors and professionals, if we lock down the whole country again, 
for two months, three months, four months, and COVID almost disappeared. What would happen when the door opened and we all came out again? That little virus would be there and saying, hello, I'm back. And it would again infect us. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 